I'll, I'll, I've said it once, I've said it many times, and I'll say it again, nothing good has come out of Phoenix. Uh, hi, I'm Nato Kitch, and tonight we look at 2006's Phoenix on the Gay Anarchist Yoga and Erotic Cooking Association. But because things are bearable with numbers, I brought on board two friends who have apparently visited worse places than Phoenix. First up, she's a first-class lady and a first-class bitch, it's Amelia. Hi there, I'm Amelia, and a place that's arguably worse than Phoenix is being locked in a room somewhere, being forced to watch this movie, and then came summer on a loop, a clockwork orange style. I can be found at the Nefarious Navigator on Instagram. Next up, they're so fly, they don't need a plane, it's Ro! Hi everybody. My name is Ro, and I'm recording today from an underground bunker located underneath a for-profit art school. (laughs) (laughs) How does one talk about a movie like Phoenix? Do we even have to? Can't we talk about Dorian Blues again? (laughs) (laughs) I would much rather talk about Dorian Blues again. I miss those days. I miss those days so much. Oh my god, at least something happens in Dorian Blues. <laughs> I chose these movies just to make you appreciate it more. Um, you know, remember when school... we <laughs> remember when we used to do movies that we actually like felt strongly about? Remember when we were in Pride Month and we put out four episodes on movies where we actually had things to say about them. Well, now we're in yeah. July. Pride is over. We have nothing to talk about. And these uh, are not those movies. <laughs> we, should, we, we should probably just get through the plot and then we can just let it all out, you know, like you do. Let it. Let it all out. Let's go. (laughs) So the plot of this film is that Dylan follows his boyfriend Ken to Phoenix only to find out he's gone missing and has a husband, Demetrius, and they eventually develop feelings for each other. That's it. That's pretty much the entire film. Um, Demetrius, that's his name. (laughs) Yeah. It's 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 one of those pretentious names that can only belong to someone who makes clay urns. And also works as a cook and a waiter. I'm I so guess. confused about it, like, because he says, like, he he's got, like, a clay-making business, but he's only seen, he has, like, all these clay pots that, you know, are there for souvenirs, but it doesn't really, like, give them away or sell them to anyone, and then he's like, I'm a cook, too, but he has, like, signs and stuff made for his clay-making business, it's... It's it's very confusing about what he does, and we uh, when I first like until like minute like thirty five of this film, I thought Dylan was a rent boy, um, you know, just like doing the sugar daddy thing, because like we don't know his profession until he comes out and says that he's a nurse, and this these are like bare bones details that you know Tyler Perry would have put in the first sentence of his movies just to get it out of the way and we have to wait freaking like a third of the way of the film just to get information that this that our main character you know it would have it would have maybe behooved the director here to have an establishing shot perhaps of Dylan at like a hospital or something doing his job before he goes back to his apartment to set up with his room for his romantic night with uh, Ken, just, and it just doesn't even just need to thought. take up that much space. Yeah, just throw like it in seconds. during the title credits. Like ten seconds of him walking 
in his nurse's uniform in a hospital, and then we can cut to the, the setting up the romance. The audience goes, oh, he's a nurse. <laughs> and then he goes back home to Ken, and you say, oh, he's a nurse and a rent boy. <laughs> I just want to put this out there, that I, I've tried really hard to come up with something nice to say about this movie over the two times I've watched it over the past week. Uh, something that, you know, isn't jokey, like they have nice nipples or something like that. And I am actually really proud to say I've come up with this. Insert compliment here when you figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, I will say, in, in in light of, like, actually having something nice to say about this movie, the music isn't bad, and the establishing shots of locations around Phoenix are also not bad. That being said, everything else about this movie is bad. <laughs> like the yeah. music the music is essential for this movie because of how bad the acting is that I need a song to flat out tell me how I'm supposed to feel at this moment in the film. Like, am you know, I supposed to be happy? And, and, and thank goodness we have 2000s-era folk tunes that explain the, <laughs> the emotions oh, in this man, scene. You know, where would this movie be without 2000s-era folk the, tunes? The acting in this movie, to me, was kind of like a piece of driftwood on the open water. <laughs> it just languidly drifted through all these, like, supposedly rough scenes, you know, dramatic scenes, and it, it was just languidly drifting through these rough waters and very wooden. Yeah, I <laughs> I agree. Um, I think even within the opening of the movie where you see Ken, our major plot point for the first and last time, <laughs> um, I mean, it doesn't even make sense to me. Why would you follow him to Phoenix. <laughs> like a good movie he's, he would seems have... like a he's he <laughs> seems like a total skis. <laughs> a good movie would have them have like a really good uh, relationship that maybe had like a few rocky moments in it and maybe have them have a fight but like have it, have it be good up till then so like he has that motivation to actually go to Phoenix and try to fix this riff that they had but this yeah, movie yeah no this is just trash from the start <laughs> right this movie is like and instead all we bag. get is like one bedroom scene of ken doing business things on the phone and interacting with his side piece rent boy guy whose name i can't remember because i only watched the movie once <laughs> and then he and then he disappears for the rest of the movie, and we're supposed to, from that much interaction, form an emotional attachment to this guy, and believe that Bobby, Billy, Teddy, Donovan, whatever the fuck his name is, <laughs> loves him so much that he would willingly follow him to Phoenix? Yeah, I don't I was going to say, it. <laughs> I, I've been in very, like, you know committed relationships that you know lasted years and i was deeply in love with people you know um i wouldn't follow any of them to phoenix of all places of, <laughs> of all, all places, places though <laughs> um, i mean i get it makes for a good movie title but 
Phoenix? I mean, <laughs> we could have taken a whole different interpretation of Phoenix here and shot it literally anywhere but Phoenix, Arizona, and used it as a metaphor for like how he's a Phoenix, Phoenix rising from the ashes of his broken relationship. But, you know... Also, there are two versions of this movie. The only one that's available online is the director's cut, which is in black and white. But apparently the original one was uh, in color. But there's a lot of things that get lost in translation with the black and white filter, which came 10 years after it was originally released in 2006. Like, um... Uh, rewatching it just now, like right before this film, with the with the introduction shots, like the establishing shots and everything, in black and white, I I actually thought, wait, Arizona has a beach, um, and like there's a part where he like burns the fish, but because it's in black and white and they didn't adjust the contrast well. <laughs> It just looks like fish, and it's so weird to have, like, Ken look over and it's like, is fish supposed to look like that? I'm like, I don't know. It's in black and white. <laughs> I actually, like, yeah, I couldn't tell where the fish ended and the foil began. <laughs> I, was, I was very confused by that. Yeah. Um, and, and, I mean, on top of all of this... Con- confusing stuff, you know, we get just, like, the first 30 or so minutes of the movie after he goes to Phoenix, not even including all this bunkus relationship building that they do. It's, like, the most boring 30 minutes of film I think I've ever watched. And like, not only that, like, Dylan will not shut up about anything. Like, he just keeps anything. on adding useless <laughs> details to these really mundane stories about his yes. life. <laughs> they <laughs> should have named this movie One Gay's Solo Vacation to Phoenix. You know, he, he must be school. really good at blowjobs because his mouth just keeps going and going and going. <laughs> you know... My high school theater teacher told us once, uh, or sorry, I don't know, that's the wrong joke. Um, <laughs> Anton Chekhov, <laughs> I, I just wrote jokes down for my notes here, honestly. Um, Anton Chekhov once said, don't tell me the moon is shining. Show me the glint of light on broken glass. Uh, what this movie did, actually, um, is he took that concept, you know, that idea of showing and not telling, and, and he just reversed it all the way. To, it's to like Dylan, they, it's just they pointed the camera telling us everything. <laughs> Actually, they pointed the camera directly at the moon and then had a character say, "Look at all that beautiful broken glass." <laughs> Actually, I, I want to talk about Chekhov's gun. Speaking of Chekhov, uh, uh, which was named after the Richard Nixon uh, famous speech, Chekhov's speech. Uh, in which he talks about how he can't be bought before revealing he's taken a bribe in the form of a dog instead. Um, Chekhov's gun states that if you introduce a gun into the story, it's expected that the gun is going to go off. So I at least have to say kudos for the film introducing this row of clay pots uh, early on and then proceeding to have someone break the clay pots in the film... (laughs) Because, really, that's all that clay pots are good for, smashing. And while, and just to elaborate on that, uh, just for one second, I like how Ken gives Dylan an urn, because this relationship be dead, y'all. 
For serious, he gives the kid an urn and then disappears for the rest of the movie. <laughs> yeah, like, what was up with that? Like, did the guy that they hired to play Ken just, like, shoot one hour of film and was like, you know what, y'all, I- I'm out, actually. This just ain't doing it for me. I gotta go. And the guy they got to play Dylan looks like some auto-generated white person. He does. I honestly, like, the first time I watched it through, I couldn't quite tell the difference between uh, Dylan and Ken and Demetrius. (laughs) I I had to, like, really work hard towards it. (laughs) And then when they finally reveal Ken's location in, like, the latter two, like, the latter third of the movie, he's in, like, Chicago of all places? Like, please, I would much rather be watching Chicago than Phoenix. <laughs> right, we couldn't have had at least, like, one one brief break from, from Phoenix to, like, show us Chicago, because Chicago's a cool city. I would have liked to see some exposition there, yeah. you know? What's Maybe Ken a shot doing of, in Kevin, Sh- of Ken What's Ken doing in Chicago besides failing at being a real estate person? <laughs> they don't even confront him. The cheating no, asshole. No, they don't. They, we, don't get, we, don't, we don't get that, like, kind of satisfaction. Like, he just, like, comes in and grabs all this stuff while he, while Dylan's, like, stupidly out, like, getting food and crap. And it's just like, oh, well, I guess we'll never... They don't call him. They don't go to Chicago. Chicago to confront him after like spending like what like a day or two like worried about him and trying to hunt him down and then when they learn he's in Chicago they're just like well he's in Chicago whoopsie guess we're fucking each other now <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's in Chicago guess we better start making out with our shirts off also can I just say that the sex scenes in this movie like rivaled the sex scenes in the room as far as like tediousness like they were so long <laughs> The music that went along with the sex scenes, it just, like, I would have left. If somebody started playing, like, that that acoustic folk shit while I was in the middle of trying to do the boom boom with them, I would have walked out. I would have been like, look, love the bod, love the sexual tension that supposedly is here, uh, but I gotta, I gotta go. <laughs> this is I just have... a mood killer. There's a time and place for acoustic folk music. <laughs> it's not sex. The bedroom is not it. <laughs> I have never been less turned on by sex scenes, and I'm in that weird part of my 30s where pizza gives me a boner. <laughs> um. You mean adolescence? <laughs> Woo, pizza. Um. <laughs> I like the scene where they added the rain sound effects, but no one is the is the slightest bit wet, <laughs> and you don't even have like you know someone with a with a with a water hose, you know, just spraying like away from the actors to make it look like it's raining or anything. It's just like oh, there's there's rain sound effects, and it's like something dramatic's about to happen. Where- um, why can't you I just feel... suspend disbelief for a second, okay? <laughs> I feel I feel like what happened with this movie is they shot all the sex scenes and then they're like, well, guess we better get a plot. <laughs> right, I feel actually. Like, I feel like 50 minutes in is a bit far out to be suspending my disbeliefs at any point. Um, <laughs> the ending song uh, is so on the nose. And like the thing you have to learn... Think you, dear listeners, 
have to understand about the folk songs is it's not just that they're 20s era explanatory folk songs. They are on the nose for what is happening in the film to the like, degree... Like, so, <laughs> they're so on the nose, I thought they were actually written for the movie. I yeah, too. me too. Like, like, the last song when the when Dylan and Demetrius break up and Dylan is leaving has, like, the lyrics, these are the days you thought you had found your lover when you thought you found a friend who wouldn't be another. And it's just like, this is legitimately a better synopsis of the plot than what we just saw on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, um, to late two thousands explanatory folk songs. You are the best thing about this film. I actually tried googling. I almost, I almost said a nice actually, thing. I actually tried googling the lyrics to some of the songs, and none of them popped up. So I'm actually almost certain they were written for the movie, which would explain why they're so on the nose. Like, if this film know? was a musical, it'd be at least slightly more entertaining. Um. Yes. At least. <laughs> I feel uh, and, and I love musicals. If this movie were a musical, I still don't think I'd give it a rewatch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's an unofficial gay sequel to Oklahoma or just a sequel to Oklahoma depending on your interpretation of Oklahoma. Um <laughs> You loved Oklahoma. Get ready for Phoenix. Everyone just like stands up and leaves. Um, so I thought a lot about what probably went wrong in this film. And I was so bored doing it that I came up with like a really... I think interesting sort of like contrast to this movie. And of course it's Troma. Um, so like uh, Troma, the king of independent underground cinema, uh, uh, who did like uh, return to Newcomb high toxic Avenger, all kinds of stuff. It did not pick like really up my classic, film. Classic like underground film. Yeah. Like, they've been going forever, and, you know, say what you want about them, but they at least know how to allot their focus when it comes to producing a film. And yes. most of that focus is, you know, you go for, like, the bad acting, the, unprodu uh, the underproduced, uh, like, mess of a film, the chaotic nature of it. But you end up staying and remembering, like, their monster design. I could describe for you, like, every detail of the Toxic Avenger. Uh, like, uh, monster, monster character, whatever you want to call them. You know, because they put a lot of time and effort into making those the centerpiece. The centerpiece for this movie is the dynamic between Dylan and Demetrius... And it doesn't feel like they allotted enough time to really focus on getting the actors to be comfortable in it, with each other. They only allotted enough time to get them off book. Yeah. Right. Like, it, like could... it's basically say line, st uh, you know, blocking, stage line, blocking, stage line, blocking. Yeah. I agree with I, that. I could describe to you in detail about how our... Little, little rent boy main character whose name I still don't know and can't be bothered to know 
spends like seven whole minutes trying to trick a motel clerk into giving him his boyfriend's room number because they spent like seven minutes doing it. And then he goes back and then when he spends there's... another five minutes sitting outside the hotel thinking about how he wants to see his boyfriend. Like the, the the focus in this movie is all over the place. They spend so much time on the silliest little things, and they spend way not enough time on actually getting to know the characters and really fleshing them out and making them seem more human. Make them seem like actual people. Right. And, like, even just building up some of that, like, sexual tension, you know? I felt like there were so many opportunities, like, leading up to when... Uh, the white dude number one Dylan Rentboy uh, Dylan and Ken like they're talking about you know the stuff or whatever like all those shots of them having mundane conversations could have been establishing shots that would lead to some actual sexual tension because like all we really saw in the movie was oh I'm a nurse Oh, I didn't know you were a nurse. You seem young for that. And then next thing you know, they're kind of close to each other. And then all of a sudden, there's that folk music, like, sex scene. There's this shot. There's actually this shot before the folk music sex scene where, Demetri- where like, uh, Dylan falls asleep on the couch and Demetrius, like, rubs the back of his hand on, like, Dylan's face. I think it's the back of his hand. It might be the front of his hand. Who knows? Um, and... Uh, so, like, the first time I saw it, because of the look Demetrius gives to him, I'm like, oh, boy, this is going to be a twist, and he's going to get murdered. And I was so excited. <laughs> I was really excited, because, like, that's a twist I didn't see coming. It turns out the right. reason that he can't get a hold of Ken is because Ken's murdered. And it's just like, that didn't happen. Um, I would have but, liked that to happen. But like, Ken but like, just went to Chicago and turned his phone off. But like, like the look that Demetrius gives Dylan is the complete opposite of someone who is growing to be, have some kind of romantic feelings for this person. It's more the look of a serial killer ready to strike. Um, right. And there's, I would... just, there's just no emotion at all in this film. None. None. Sorry, I interrupted you. (laughs) I would have loved to have seen like, a really like, heated argument over Ken between Demetrius and Rentboy Stevens. Um... (laughs) whose name I still refuse to learn, even though you've said it a million times, it would have been a much more interesting build-up and would have even, I would say, provided more sexual attention leading up to our folk music sex scene. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Instead of, you know, you're a nurse? Yeah, I'm a nurse. You seem a little young for nursing. I know, it's because I have baby face. (laughs) It's I know tee hee wanna play doctor with me. Oh lord. <laughs> I can't I can't with this movie. Like honestly, I have found Demetrius's gaggle of gay best friends to be more compelling characters than Oh, and there's this Demetrius like, and Rentboy Stevens. There's this like weird anti uh poly like message like at the very end. Where, yeah. where they're just, like, poly-shaming the old couple. 
Yeah, that it's was like, a really weird scene that just made no sense. Like, and Red Boy Steven's like, so you're not monogamous? No, but like, this, no we're but not. This is, this is the director's cut. So obviously this was part of the director's vision is to have poly shaming in this movie to boost up monogamy for some reason. Um... Yeah, because as we know, Rent Boy Steve really just wanted to get married and grow old with somebody and have children. That's all he wanted. Which is such and a... he didn't care if he had the home wreck to do it. What a, why what the hell weird... was he... Why the hell was he smiling when he was driving away? There was nothing for him to be smiling I was, about. I was so confused by that that part because, like, he's smiling and then you see all this, like kind of cathartic supposedly like waves and currents and jagged rocks and stuff which i like it left me very confused i was like okay so is is he leaving happy or like is he leaving with like all this turmoil over this like kind of relationship that he doesn't know where it's gonna go with demetrius yeah and i had like, this feeling it's like demetrius was mean to me so i'm living for myself now yeah, and then, like, there's the random tractor shots, like, just thrown in there, too. It's like, the only way to cure my heartbreak is a cross-country trip across America. Oh my god, I just realized, he's living on a nurse's wage, and he's living by himself in, I think, a two-bedroom apartment in L.A. Yeah, he's gonna- talk about realism. <laughs> See, I was, I was kind of under the impression... Which I guess we'll never know because we learned close to nothing about Ken. Um, I was kind of under the impression that there was a bit of like a maybe Ken was paying for some stuff for him type deal going on. That, but hence the rent boy thing. Uh. Yeah, but like I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know because we learned nothing about their relationship other than that Ken had another boyfriend. And didn't not his friends. That, <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with being a rent boy. There's um, absolutely like nothing wrong. We fully support all forms of sex work here. Go ahead and say that we at the Gay Anarchist Yoga and Erotic Cooking Association are very pro-rent boys and very pro-sex work. <laughs> Just not in the con- not in the context of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Even in the context of this movie, if Dylan was a rent boy, good for him, you know? I mean, like, <laughs> we, we'd we love him all the more for it, but, We you just know, want answers, okay? <laughs> we, we need concrete answers. We need more There's character There's so little information given about any character in this movie. You know more about the playbooks. <laughs> We do, yes. To even try and dissect the characters in this movie is an act of futility. And the fact that we've spent almost 30 minutes doing it now <laughs> just shows, you know. <laughs> you know, I I don't want to do this film, to be honest. I, I just want this episode to be over so I never have to think about this film again. The biggest <laughs> sin in my book that any movie can commit is being boring. Like, you can mock bad films, you can find enjoyment over how bad they are most times. Uh, What can you do with this other than use it as a sleep aid like Roe did? You know? Yeah, I um, I literally, (laughs) 
in my notes during this movie wrote, it's not often I welcome ad breaks, but I'll be darn tootin' if I didn't find the ads a more enjoyable break from whatever this boring thing was. This movie made me look forward more to uh, the new Space Jam movie, but only because, like, every 30 minutes there was an ad for the new Space Jam movie. (laughs) I thought you were about to say Jeff London Week, too. (laughs) (laughs) This movie makes me look forward to Jeff London Week. (laughs) And and for the people who think that I'm feigning my anger towards this movie, I I wish I could share with you, like the chat we had going while I was watching it. And keep in mind, we just reviewed a movie where a white person said the N-word, and in a couple of weeks, we will probably review another movie where the white person says the (laughs) N-word. And this movie is so boring that it's almost worse. Almost. Almost. Not gonna Almost. say the line, <laughs> not on podcast. Almost. Um. <laughs> you know, I do want to say this movie did have one really good thing for going for it. I, I'm, I'm gonna say something nice. I thought the ending of this movie was wonderful, and I don't say that because it was well written or anything. It's just because. It told me, and I knew in my heart when I saw the end credits roll up, that I would never have to watch this movie again. <laughs> so, <laughs> so good job. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my gosh. Why? Dear God. <laughs> Je- this I think is, there's this a message a- in here somewhere. There's a message in here somewhere. Just because you're making low-budget gay cinema doesn't mean that you can just ignore all the basic tenets of good movie making. Like, like Beverly like, Kills had, <laughs> I think, a smaller budget than this or, like, a comparable budget to this. And at least that was fun and entertaining. A lot of the films that Richard Griffin, director of um, none, director of none of that... Are fairly low budget, but they have so much going for them. They have so much variety. They have so much personality that, like, you basically just have to be. I don't want to say bad. I don't want to say it. You. There is a difference between a director who can take the limitations of having a low budget for a film and make the most of it. Okay. That, I mean, yeah. Like, like, like in sorry. school, like in school, you're taught from in film school, you're taught that if you don't have a lot of money, spend a lot of time in pre-production, planning everything out to a T working with actors to get them comfortable. Right. And so that you can all, so that you can accomplish things in like one or two takes. You, know, you need to make sure that every dollar you're spending on the movie is getting stretched yeah. to its absolute limit so that you're getting the most out of it. And, like, you know, Whereas... I, think, I think a low-budget movie can stand very strongly. Like, if the story can stand strongly on its own, you don't really need that much in the way of, like, set or, like, props or anything like that. Like, a truly good story should just be able to stand on its own. Without, and there are like, no small number of low-budget movies that went on to become extremely successful. Lamageddon. 
Pink Flamingos. Uh, Cannibal, Cannibal the Musical, Pink, Pink Flamingos. Yeah, like, there's so many of them. Hobo with the shotgun. I'm just oh. guessing that that budget had to be small. Like. I love Hobo with the shotgun. Such, but, a, yeah. such a good movie. But, uh, like, just take... You don't have to go and make the movie that's in your heart of hearts right now. Yeah. Like... You can take your time if you don't have the budget or you can't get the budget, and you can try and perfect everything up to it. I've been working on a damn music album for about a decade now, and it's basically just coming out next year, but it's just like, you work on perfecting it. You don't just... Right. You need to find the right people. You need to find the sp- the time and the space to really make sure that you're going in as prepared as humanly possible. You maybe so need that to... way, when you finally do make it, it comes out as good as you can make it. You maybe need to have somebody read through and edit your screenplay a little bit to point out right. it's like, hey, here's a good point where instead of telling this, we could maybe have a flashback to your traumatic like prom date or whatever. Like, <laughs> Right. There's no reason to introduce one of your main characters 30 minutes into the movie and then proceed to have, like, the blandest on-screen love affair ever put to... I don't know. Were they still using film in 2006? (laughs) I don't know. This was shot on (laughs) mini-DV. Right. I can tell. Exactly. (laughs) Like... Just establishing shots, that's all I'm asking for. You know, like in the intro, have an establishing so- shot of, you know, Rent Boy Steve nursing. Have an establishing <sighs> shot of Ken doing his, like, real estate shit. Or maybe, like, whatever shady stuff he was doing to uh, get, you know, chased by the bank or whatever was happening. Have an establishing shot of something that's not the top of a cactus. Yeah, have an establishing shot of maybe Demetrius making his pottery and, like, Ken hugging him or whatever. So, like, we go into it knowing that Ken is a sleazy piece of shit that's cheating on Rent Boy Steve. Like, let's... And that way, when we meet Demetrius and he has that kind of emotional outburst, we have a little bit of context. Right. We don't have to wait for him to storm into the... Into the motel room and like act like a petulant kid for five minutes and then say Ken is my husband. Speaking of that scene, it is really hard to take a serious scene seriously when the person who's doing the super serious acting is right by sequined pillows. (laughs) Yeah. Like. Those didn't need to be in there in the beginning. Were you not allowed to move them or something? But it's just like, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to sit here and pout next to these really shiny sequin pillows. And And does the motel clerk need so much screen time? Yeah, what? Screen time? Both of them, to be honest. Both of the clerks. Yeah, that was, like, yeah. a ten-minute-long scene of him, like, tricking the trainee clerk into giving him the info he needed when it could have just been, like, 30 seconds and done. Can you give me this? No, it's against company policy. Okay, bye! I feel like that's all of, like, <laughs> Dylan's stories as well, <laughs> just to go back to that. It's like, uh, where is your favorite place? Asheville, North Carolina. And then he goes on this mon- this long-winded monologue that made me feel like I was... At- 
you know, having, uh, uh, waking up from a coma and learning I was in, like, a theater class um, <laughs> in a stable liberal arts college. Oh, my God. Um, I would much rather be in a table read in theater class than listen to Rent Boy Stevens, like, drunkenly spew about how every seven years the cells in your body regenerate. So you're they don't like even, a new they don't person. Even, they don't even do that. Like, like, like <laughs> your cells regenerate at different rates depending on the different parts of your body. It's not like every seven years all your cells go, whoop, time to regenerate. Bloop. It's just they, like some are regenerating right as we're having this discussion. <laughs> It's I mean, not like, I just think I just think that whole conversation could have gone so many different places and done so many different things, and they chose God the most boring option, like the most boring and uninteresting route to go. Why are you? Right? A, why are you and a I nurse? Mean, I got bit by a snake, and this is this this is the story. And I went to I went to the know, hospital, and so it was this really nice thing where the hospital lady kept talking to me, and I learned out later that the reason she kept talking to me, which I never got that kind of attention before, so it was really nice. But the reason she kept talking to me was it turns out with the anti venom that I was given because of my snake bite. If you go to sleep, you die. It's like that's a, that's a long way to get to the end of the story. Like you with, know, with information that's not needed. <laughs> Sorry, actually, Amelia. during no, 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 you're good. Actually, during that scene, I found myself wondering where we would be if he had just died from the rattlesnake bite, and there hadn't been a movie to write about him. We would probably be reviewing a better movie tonight. <laughs> And I mean, it's it's this thing in low-budget, poorly-made movies where the script writers will pick these most, like, inane topics to, like, seem really, really deep. Like, you know this is a deep conversation because they're talking about something that's completely unrelated to the plot, like cells regenerating, or... UFOs, Jeff London, like, and you don't, it doesn't need to be that deep, you know, you don't need to force it, you really don't need to, <laughs> you can just have natural conversation about what's happening in the plot, and right. you probably still have a better script than what like, you had for this movie. You would think that two drunk guys that just got cheated on by the same guy at a bar would maybe be focusing on that a little more. <laughs> like, to be fair to right. Jeff London, at least bringing up aliens in that conversation is tied into a later discussion in the film to bring the characters closer together, that being that the other character, um, the the love interest for what the his face, um, the the love interest wanted to be an astronaut, so that at least tied in to bringing them closer together, showing they had similar interests. This one is like I got bit by a snake. Oh, there's snakes in Arizona. I guess we're soulmates. <laughs> You know, like, like, Jeff London, like, and then Came Summer wasn't necessarily, like, a masterpiece, but at least it had ideas in there that weren't fully formed, but at least they tried to connect things together. 
this movie is just like someone got really drunk and high and just wrote down all the conversations they had and then tried to put it together into a film and then got really bland actors to try to bring it to life. It's like they just... Sorry, I'm chewing. It's like they just threw... Um, it's like they just threw random lines of dialogue and topic at a wall and whatever stuck, that's like what they included in the film. It's Maybe. like, okay, we have these two jilted lovers here. What do they need to talk about so that they can have sex? <laughs> you know what this actually felt like? I think that would actually do a better job. Like, if it was, for some reason, reinterpreted into something. This would be a great one-act play. I agree. Like, actually really agree. You yeah. can have the whole thing take place at a bar or like at or outside a bar and it doesn't need to be that long keep it to 30 40 minutes you'd have a great story you'd have some really compelling topics to talk about and you wouldn't need fucking 45 minutes of cactus shots to fill in (laughs) empty space or like seven minute scenes with like some hotel clerk that you're never going to see again. You can have all this really impactful stuff really kind of dialed in and focused so that it punches at like maximum impact. It doesn't need everything that's been thrown at this movie. Not at all. Not at all. I I think the last thing, because like I'm just... I'm I'm pretty much done talking about this film and I'm this you know <laughs> this movie made NATO's brain tired. <laughs> <laughs> and the last thing I want to say is that this movie this, this one of the things that I've kind of learned watching like and looking into queer film for over the past like few years is that the saddest part of a lot of it is the knowledge that a lot of the actors whether they're good whether they're bad whether they're hot whether they're not you know it doesn't matter but a lot of the actors that are in these just kind of disappear into the ether like you know not even like on you know facebook or instagram or any other places that i could stalk them um and like dylan like dylan's actor is kind of just like poof gone uh i think it was either demetrius or ken their actors are just like gone as well but like a lot of the actors in queer cinema like only appear in like a few movies and then like their career is done right and it's kind of disappointing going to IMDb and looking at these film pages and seeing all these actors that don't have headshots, don't have resumes to speak of, and really just only had a career in the context of one sometimes okay movie. And to be fair, like, to be completely honest and fair, I just don't think they really had the time to really prepare and get used to the material they were given. They didn't have 
uh, either due to like not having that much experience or or being afraid to they didn't really try to make the material their own and because of that this obviously didn't pay play to any of the actors strengths um and i feel like i feel kind of bad because i don't i think somewhere in this there is a movie there is a compromise that wasn't had that would that would have made this a movie that we wouldn't have spent like 30 40 minutes uh ranting about it, yeah. it could have been like a really nice right. indie darling dramatic film that just kind of got lost to the ether that just and kind of came and went and people forgot about right let me make this perfectly clear this is not a bad story and the characters are not bad characters. It's just that every other part of the movie suffered so much from either time restrictions or budgetary restrictions yeah. or bad directing or yeah. bad producing or whatever that none of the things that were good about this movie were allowed to shine through. Yeah. Yeah, I think with a little more time and care, this has, like, the foundation and the makings of, like, a really decent, like, you know, little indie love story. Exactly. Yeah. Nothing nothing super groundbreaking, but yeah. this movie could have been darling, you know? This, no, not this all film has to be groundbreaking. Not, this, this movie could have been quaint and cute. And yeah. instead, yeah. it was just, like, some blah black and white think piece about a young person who's the third wheel in a relationship and you were like i'm not gonna have anything to talk about this podcast (laughs) right (laughs) uh well i i i think we should just uh give our final opinions on this film and you know just ignore that it ever existed in the first place um (laughs) Because, like, while it really could have been something... Yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> Amelia, does this movie rise like a phoenix or just cook on the sidewalk like a broken egg? It definitely crashes and burns, yes. <laughs> um, um, bro, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, I don't know, I was just gonna say, like, yeah, it just... I wish it was better, but it's not, so... <laughs> Ro, does this movie make you want to go visit Phoenix or just go to Santa Fe and open up a restaurant? I mean, I've been to close to both places. I don't think it really makes me want to do either. (laughs) It makes me want to go back to bed, to be honest. (laughs) As for me, so just look, if you like the idea of a movie where two people who have been cheated on come together because of that deception and it all builds to a great story with really complex emotions and amazing performances, uh, you're looking for Juan Car Wise in the mood for love. Um, skip Phoenix, it's barely a film. <laughs> anyway, that's what we think, but if you've seen this movie or end up watching it later, we'd love to hear your thoughts and your experience with it. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at GayEcapod, that's G-A-Y-E-C-A-P-O-D. While you're there, why not suggest a movie for us to watch in the future? We're always looking for new suggestions. We can't wait to experience more movies with you. I... Nato Kitsch reminding you that if you follow your boyfriend to Phoenix, be prepared for nothing but disappointment.
later. Bye. Honestly, they sh- should have just named this movie Melatonin. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>